Please turn with me to Joel chapter 2. We continue our um, study in this book. Joel chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 28 through 32 today concerning the promise of the Holy Spirit. Next week we'll finish up Joel. We'll do all of chapter 3 next week and then we'll begin looking at a few selected topics concerning our church's mission and just who we are. And then we will, just a few weeks doing that, and then we're going to begin a study through the book of Acts, which I'm excited about. Uh, That'll probably take up most, if not all, of 2018. So let me encourage you to begin your uh, own study on the book of Acts, uh, just to go ahead and begin looking at some of the different themes that are there. Before we come to this text today, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with it. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we are reminded that it is perfect and inerrant and holy, and we are not. And so, Lord, we pray that as we come to it, that you would help us with it, open our hearts and our minds to understand, to hear, to listen what you have to tell us, to be convicted of our sins as we come face to face with your word that you would teach us from it how we ought to live, what we should know concerning you. We are thankful to have your word, and so, Lord, help us to to learn from it today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I prepared this message, obviously being uh, Christmas season, today being Christmas Eve, I thought it important to talk about some Christmas things, uh, particularly as we this text actually fits right into the Advent season, which is one of the reasons I chose chose the book of Joel. Um, So one of the traditions growing up for us, and I'm sure for many of you, was to gather at a relative's house. For me, it was one of my aunt's houses. And uh, we would go there and we would eat a big meal together, and then we would gather around the Christmas tree and we would open gifts. And so as a kid, I had to suffer through the first part, the food, of course, in order to get through to the next part, the presents. I wished I could have just shown up at the presents, but apparently I needed to eat. I loved food growing up, but not as much as I, as I do now. But I loved presents a lot more. And so uh, I saw the food time as kind of this in-the-way time, um, the event that only obscured the real meaning of Christmas for me, presents. And so the adults would eat and talk, and then they would go to get seconds, and then they would eat dessert, and then they would talk some more, and they would slowly mosey over to the tree, and then they would tease the children. You know how that goes. Are you ready to open them? Uh, Or, well, I guess we'll just get rid of these since no one wants them. You know, that sort of banter. Uh, The things that you despise when you're a kid, but then you still use as an adult. It's kind of funny how that works out. Um, um, then you finally get to the presence, and it was a joyous time. And now it's kind of flip-flopped. Uh, I love the food more than the presence. I don't know why. It's just kind of funny how that works out. Um, but our text today has the same kind of feel to it, this feel of waiting. Last week we talked about how the Lord blessed Israel. He blessed them with provisions. He blessed them with rain. He was helping them to deal with the plague of locusts that they had just uh, been overcome with. But in today's text, we see the real prize. 
the real prize, the real treat that they had waited for. Israel had long been waiting for this time when the enemies, when their enemies would be vanquished. The Lord would send to them this long-promised deliverer, Savior, Messiah, who would usher them into the promised land, finally, once and for all, to where their enemies would no longer have power over them, where they would, where they would be in the place that the Lord had prepared for them. This promise in our text today is a messianic promise, having as much to do with Christmas as any text in the book of Luke. Rather than Jesus, the Son of God here, we have the promise of the Spirit of God coming to comfort his people completely. Rather than pouring out rain on the crops of Israel, God is pouring out his Spirit on the hearts of the men and women. This is salvation for them, that God would be among them, like in the times of the tabernacle. But now every single believer would be able to experience this. This text is a promise of salvation to the people. Peter knew it. That's why he quoted it at Pentecost. The day when the Holy Spirit came down among the people. And they were all together in one place. And we'll look at that. When the people from every nation heard the gospel in their own tongue. Hundreds were saved. And so from that, we're going to look at this text today in three points. The act of the Spirit's outpouring. The signs of the Spirit's outpouring, and then finally, the invitation. And so with that, let's read the text, Joel chapter 2, 28 through 32. Let's stand together as we read from God's Word. Joel chapter 2, starting at verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show you wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So please keep your place there, Mark and Joel, and turn with me to Acts chapter 2 as we read from this text where Peter preaches the same text that I'm preaching this morning. Acts chapter 2, I'm going to read the first four verses, then I'm going to skip up and start at verse 14. So Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem. And this goes on to talk about some of the different countries that were there present and that heard the word from the Lord. 
And then here's Peter in verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And he reads the text that I just read to you in verses 17 through 21. And then he goes on in verses 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter takes this text from Joel and he preaches Christ from it. So remember when the Lord told the apostles that it was better for him to go away because the helper was going to be coming. It's in John 14, I think verse 12. It's hard for us to imagine something better than having Jesus here on earth with us, right? Or having, for them, having Jesus on earth with them. They're in one place with them. But that's just it, right? Jesus on earth means that he is here in one place. Jesus was fully man, don't forget, and couldn't be in more than one place at once. Yes, he was God, fully God also, and I understand that. But what was the commission that he gave to the disciples? Was to go out into the uttermost parts of the world. Every single one of them. How many could he be with? One. So it was better for him to be with the Father, interceding on our behalf. And then they, the Father and the Son, would send a helper, God the Spirit, to be with his people from our very first breath as new believers until the day we are ushered into the presence of the Father. The Spirit is with us, and he's with us even in eternity. Peter and the disciples, the many men and women who were there in the upper room that day there in Acts chapter 2, they experienced this firsthand. They were so empowered that they went out and they preached the gospel, and there were people there from all over the world. If you go back to Acts chapter 2, you can just read through that list of countries. It's incredible. It's really an undoing of what happened in Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel and scattering everybody into different languages. He's bringing everyone together, and they all heard the gospel in their own language. Many thought they were drunk, but Peter made sure that they understood. This is the event that was prophesied of old, and we have this prophecy before us in the book of Joel. And just like kids waiting to open presents, Peter and the other followers of Jesus waited for the gift to come that was to come after Jesus, that Jesus told them would come. They waited, and they were rewarded. And the Spirit worked through them to see the church spread to the uttermost parts of the world. From, all, from Spain all the way to India. The twelve disciples. 
spread the gospel. Just those 12 men. Not to mention the men that they discipled and the men that they discipled. The men and women that spread the gospel all over the world. Still does that today through the work of that same spirit. And that leads us to our first point. The act of the Spirit's outpouring. Verses 28 and 29. Joel chapter 2. And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants. In those days I will pour out my Spirit. In Numbers chapter 11. You don't have to turn there. God instructs Moses to give some of the elders a portion of the spirit that was given to him. Why did he instruct him to do that? Well, because he was ministering to several hundred thousand, maybe millions of people. He had to, he needed some help. And so he gave the elders a portion of this spirit. Well, there were two men that were in the camp who were actually prophesying, and, and they weren't there at the meeting with Moses, and Joshua was upset. And he told Moses, he said, tell them to stop. And this is what Moses said in 11.29. He said this, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them, meaning all the Lord's people. What Moses spoke about and hoped for back in Numbers 11, when they hadn't even seen Israel yet, when they were still marching toward the promised land, What Joel is now prophesying, and what he prophesied, Peter preached there at Pentecost, this same idea. None of those men, however, could have imagined the extent of what was meant by this prophecy, that the Spirit of God would be among his people. That Jesus' coming not only brought salvation to his people, But it ushered in a time when the people of God would no longer be without God near them at all times. He would live in them. He says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So it makes me think of Ezekiel 36 again, when the spirit came. God said, when the spirit comes, he will take our hearts of stone and make them into hearts of flesh. And his spirit would come and cause us to walk in his ways. Make sure you're making that connection here. This is that same spirit that Joel's prophesying about, that Peter preached about. The spirit's coming isn't just a trinket for Christians to keep on their shoulders to guide them like some little talking cricket. Make sure we understand that it's not just our guide through life. The Spirit comes into the life of a believer and takes over, causing them to come to life. Ezekiel 37 is a great picture of this, the Valley of Dry Bones. What does God do to the Valley of Dry Bones in order to see them become to life? He breathes His Spirit on them. Ephesians chapter 2, same idea. We read this verse last week. But God, being rich in mercy, even while we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive in Christ. How did he do that? Through the Spirit's work. He said, your sons and your daughters, your old men and young men, male and female servants. He listed all these different types of people. They will all be affected by the Spirit's work in their life. 
read the book of Acts. Is this not how the book of Acts plays out? Is it just the rich and powerful that come to know Jesus? Is it just the poor? Is it just the free? Is it just the men? It's all kinds of people that come to see the Spirit's work in their life. Men and women saw visions. They dreamed dreams. They spoke in tongues to the people so they could hear the gospel in their own language. It happened to all kinds of people. Men, women, slave, free, young and old. It happened to Jews and Gentiles. The gift of the gospel was far-reaching. The gift of the Spirit always, every single time, accompanied those who called upon the name of the Lord. There wasn't some kind of special thing that had to happen in order to get the Spirit. The Spirit comes with Jesus. What about for today? Well, John Calvin, who's often called the theologian of the Holy Spirit, he says this, The Holy Spirit is the bond by which Christ efficaciously unites us to himself. Calvin was a student of Scripture. We can read this straight from the words of, of Scripture. Ephesians 1.14 says this very same thing, that the Spirit, the Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. It is our promise that God is coming back, that our Lord Jesus is coming back to us to get us, to bring us with him, that we might spend eternity with him. How can we have absolute assurance of our standing before God? I'll tell you one way we can't do it, and it's through our own merit. Because if it were, we'd live in fear always. If we had to look at our own works and say, well, today I'm a good person, yesterday I wasn't, perhaps my salvation is slipping a bit, that would be horrifying to live in that sort of fear. No, we stand upon the merit of Christ, which never, which never slacks, which never diminishes at all. It is sealed with the Spirit's presence in our lives. He is here with us and in us. Romans chapter 8 16 and 17 says this, The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit reminds us constantly that we are His. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. For us, we have assurance. We have the promise that the world is, even though the world is bad, Christ is still with us. Though we experience just a taste of those blessings now, just a taste, how much more will it be when we are with him in glory? We wait for that day. We know that it will come because the Spirit has been poured out upon us. And that brings us to the next point, the signs of the Spirit's outpouring. Verses 30 and 31. I will show you wonders in the heaven and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. The day of the Lord. Here we see this theme again. The Spirit's coming. These two things are tied together here in this text. Peter included this portion of, of Joel's prophecy in his sermon. So we should probably see them linked together as well. There's probably a sense, and a lot of a lot of folks 
go back and forth on this, but there's probably a sense in which this is happening there at Pentecost. It was a kind of the day of the Lord, not in the columns of smoke and the darkness and those kinds of things, but there was a mighty rushing wind. There were tongues of fire. It was definitely a very supernatural occurrence, caused so much of a stir that there were hundreds standing around to hear Peter's sermon. Pretty incredible. Like lots of things we see in prophecy, there's a near fulfillment and there's a further fulfillment, like some sort of ultimate fulfillment that we wait for. We talked about this idea with the day of the Lord. The one mentioned here doesn't sound like a pleasant thing at all, which is what we might be expecting to see when the Lord comes back. It's not going to be pleasant. I think there's even a picture here of the times that Jerusalem had been sacked there in verse 32, talking about the survivors that are leaving, escaping the city, and the Lord calling among from the survivors. Maybe could be there. But there will be a day when the Lord is coming to take his people home. And in that day, there will be no escape for the unbeliever. Blood, fire, and smoke are just a mild comparison to the judgment that the Lord will bring. The judgment he brings is eternal. We see that he talks about this constantly in the Gospels, separating the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the chaff, his people from his enemies. And so if we read this, if we read this judgment that's coming... We have to ask ourselves, thankfully we hope in Christ, but what hope does the unbeliever have? That brings us to the next point, the invitation. Look at verse 32. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The promise here goes much beyond locusts, does it not? It is ultimate. Those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This is a promise of God with eternal implications. How do we know that this is eternal implications? How do we know that Joel isn't simply just talking about if you call out to the Lord, then he'll bring rain on your crops and he'll bring you some food and some provision? Paul quotes this verse in Romans 10.13. Who was Paul referring to? In Romans 10:13, when it comes to the Lord that we call out to salvation, Jesus. Peter quotes it in Acts 2. Who is the Lord that Peter was referring to? Jesus. When Joel wrote it, wrote it, who is the Lord that he was pointing to and looking forward to? Who is the Lord that would come to save his people from their sins? What did the angel tell Mary? that she would name that baby Jesus. The invitation offered here in Joel is the same that is offered today and the same one that has been offered since Jesus came, died, and rose from the dead and ascended to the Father. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. The invitation assumes that the Lord will do the work as well. It assumes that the person calling out is is unable to save themselves and that they need a Savior. It assumes also that that is all they need to do, to call upon the name of the Lord and to be saved. There's no contract to be signed or a list of rules to follow. He or she who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So, brothers and sisters, in conclusion, what do we do? 
First of all, let us not get caught up in the day-to-day things of this life. We might miss the eternal blessing for the very simple ones that we have. That isn't to say that we aren't grateful for the things that he gives us each day, the provisions that we have every day, but we wait for something greater. The very Spirit of God lives in us. It is our guarantee that there is something greater for us, that he even now is preparing a place for us. This does a few things. Again, first, it gives us a great assurance. We talked a little bit about assurance last year or last week in Sunday school. We should never doubt our place at the Lord's table. He says he's preparing a place for us. He says we will dine with him at his supper in eternity. If you have called upon his name, he has saved you. You have his Holy Spirit, his guarantee that he is preparing a place for you. We must have that assurance in our lives as believers. But secondly, you have to understand, too, that with the Spirit living in us, we have a great power. Not in ourselves, obviously, any more than those fishermen did at Pentecost, that Peter and those men that were with him had great power in and of themselves. They didn't have power by themselves, but they trusted in the Lord. He poured out his Spirit on them, and they saw the world turn upside down for the gospel. We have that. What should we do with it? Well, to share the name of Jesus, the only name with the power to save. But those who we meet, those who we're going to share Christmas dinner with, Jesus is the name above all names. It's the only name under heaven to save men and women. So let us be faithful to spread the promise of redemption that he has given to us through that name. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we read from these prophecies of old and as we read from the New Testament authors who who preached from them, we are more and more aware of your word's authority, of its influence. And so, Lord, help us to not only submit to it, but also to see it spread, that the name of Jesus would be on our lips that people would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved, that you would use us as instruments of this redemptive work, that you would see us go out to the uttermost, even to our own neighbors, which isn't exactly uttermost. The Lord help us to do just that, to go the little steps, that we might be encouraged to go further. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.